0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 12th episode of Weaving Myths. Weaving Myths is a podcast focused on tabletop role-playing games and specifically playing them through the play-by-post format. I'm your host, Nathan, and joining me today are Ruben. Hello. And Mordai. You have my axe. We are all moderators on Mythweavers, a play-by-post gaming website, and we're here to help you bring your game to the next level. If you're not familiar with Mythweavers, you can find it at myth-weavers.com. As always, we are joined by the impeccable text chat, which members of Mythweavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. Today on the agenda, we have Intrigue and Mystery Games, which we'll be talking about over the next hour or hour and a half or so. At the end, we'll open the floor to a live Q&A session from the text chat where anyone can ask us anything, be it about Mythweavers gaming or anything else they want to know. So... Before we get onto the topics this evening, I want to take a moment to make sure our listeners are up to speed with a couple of things. We are up to 12 episodes of Weaving Myths, which is absolutely amazing, and I have to say that I'm very proud of my fellow casters, and I'm so glad for each and every one of our listeners. Um, I really honestly cannot say it enough, but I appreciate all of you, whether you are a patron of the show or you just listen in casual. Without you, this show would not be possible. Um, I know for sure we've talked about this on Mythweavers After Dark, but just in case, I'd like to let everyone know officially that this is going to be the last episode of Weaving Myths for the year. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up what we call Season 1 with this episode, and then we'll be taking a couple months off so everyone can enjoy the holiday season and take a break from the show. That said, content for Weaving Myths will not be over for this year. We're going to be doing another session of Weaving Myths Does Tabletop early in December. Uh, the recording for that will be available for patrons of Weaving Myth. Also, later in December, I'm going to be making a blooper reel for Weaving Myths Season 1. That should be available around Christmas time. That will be, that particular recording will be available for everybody. January will feature another session of Weaving Myths Does Tabletop, again available for patrons. Uh, last but not least, before I shut up and we get on to the show, Season 2 of Weaving Myths will be starting next February and will run until the end of May. Uh, we'll be taking another break in June and July, and then Season 3 will start in August of twenty eight. And with that, it is time for the very first topic of the evening, and the first topic tonight is intrigue. And we're going to talk about all sorts of intrigues. Uh, Mordai or Ruben, would you like to kick us off on that?
1: I'll take it. Why don't we talk about what is Intrigue as far as play-by-post goes? And really a big part of Intrigue is teasing apart the actions of multiple factions and trying to navigate your own faction to victory in turbulent waters. And really where that starts with is the players have to feel invested in the success of their faction. And their faction is a big part of the setting itself using a pre-existing setting can help build a good intrigue game because it's something that people can find details out about readily with available wiki resources or fan content or what, what have you so that they can uh, really get invested and interested in the game early on.
0: So one thing I'll note about people buying into the setting is that you really have to, well, I would recommend that you use a setting that people already know about, uh, rather than a setting that you have to explain to your players. Or, if you're going to use a homemade setting, you should probably run a game for them in that setting first, a more traditional game, before they get into the aspect of managing a faction. Um, So what this does is it lets the players learn the setting before they take over a faction that has to compete with other factions within the setting. If you just throw that at them, and they have no idea about any of these factions running around, they're not going to be ready to take control of that faction. Well,
2: even further, Intrigue lives and dies by investment in the setting. You can't run a good Intrigue game unless players really, really care about what happens in the setting and what happens in their faction. This is not a game you can run where people have lukewarm investment. People have to really, really buy into this. And if you can't get enough people to like buy into this and really get excited about it, you're not going to succeed. This is kind of an all or nothing thing. Yeah, it's really, really important that you pick something everybody's really invested in. You can't have half the group buy it. Everybody has to buy it.
1: Well, that's true. You have to also be careful that when you're using established settings, it's very easy to get people who are so knowledgeable in the canon that they think that everything has to proceed along the pre-designated path. And the whole point of an intrigue game is you're getting into that setting with the idea that it's going to change as the factions move and shift and make attacks on each other and defend against attacks from each other. The end result is not going to follow the canon path that's been established. So The players have to be willing to let that go from the moment that the green flag drops for the game.
2: Oh, absolutely. You, uh, yeah. By default, an entry game is going to break the setting wide open and change it in ways that players care about. So if you have players that really want things to go along the path because this novel setup is, they're not going to work. Again, you're really going to be able to pick your players well.
0: So one thing I'll note is that with intrigue games, it doesn't necessarily have to be a fantasy setting, but any decently well-developed setting can work for this, whether it's Star Wars or Firefly or the Shadowrun setting. You can pick basically anything for an intrigue game. It doesn't have to necessarily be a pre-established fantasy world.
2: I think, for me, I like going for settings that have enough information that people kind of know basically what their faction's about, but they're also broadly sketched enough that you don't know what happens 50 years in the future. It's kind of a lot easier to do an entry game in like Eberron where the whole timeline isn't sketched out versus Forgotten Realms where we know what happens 50 years in the future when drits save us all again.
1: Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I meant about the, the canon knowledge. And uh, another example that I've run into when I've tried to run games is uh, in the Star Trek world. Uh, Trekkies are, are fairly infamous for their ability to haul out details from an episode that you've half forgotten and you know, maybe you didn't even know existed because you just haven't had the time to watch every single episode back to back to back to back three times in a row. But you know, they're going to know those details. And moreover, they're going to expect you to abide by those details. So it's important to say, hey, here's the point in the timeline when I'm starting. Here's the parameters of the game and then we're going to break and the rest of the canon doesn't matter so the fact that you know it great sorry not useful for this game
2: one thing you can do that helps with this is take a seventy take a setting everybody knows really well like star trek most of us knows what happens in star trek and then either shift the time period oh we're playing trek before kirk or shift the location oh we're outside of the delta quadrants far beyond where even the Voyager ranged. Uh, so take the setting they're familiar with, but change the time or the location to where nobody really knows what's going on now, but we still know what each of the factions do. That
0: way you're not running up against canon because you shifted the time or the place. Tiffany Corda mentions that, yeah, if it helps, even the show struggles with consistency. So even Star Trek itself, like the true episodes, they have a, they sometimes struggle with timelines and uh consistency between episodes.
2: One thing I've done is taken media that was canceled kind of before its time or canceled right at a cliffhanger or something and started there. Like Firefly, we only ever got one season. We don't really know what happens after that. So just start at the end of the season go forward from there. We all know what the factions are like, but we don't know how it ends because that was never actually written. But they set us up with a lot of good cliffhangers.
1: Yep, incomplete works are great. The uh, Our friends at the Sci-Fi Channel have given us many incomplete works. Uh, One of my favorite being the Stargate canon. So uh, I run off a lot with that and have an ongoing game that started with a premise similar to the Stargate universe, and now we're completely off the rails. It's a lot of fun.
2: Oh, things like Stargate are great because... You can spin off endless incarnations just on the one premise. Yeah, take the premise, take the setting, and then make it your own.
0: It depends on if you count the Serenity movie as closure for Firefly or not.
2: Well, even beyond that, what happens after they reveal the reveal after the Serenity movie? That's true. I mean, what happens then? That's true. So another thing, when you're running this, and it kind of ties back to the other stuff, make sure what you're running on is actually important. If you're running a Star Trek game and you're running the game about whether or not the Engineers Guild should get a 15 transporter credit raise, that's not particularly interesting. But if you're running on, oh, should the board join the Federation because suddenly they want to, that's much more important. You have to make sure the issues that you're trying to intrigue around matter.
0: Sure, and you don't want to make them too complicated either. Like, you don't want... So, something that would be important but way too complicated for a intrigue game would be, for example, the Holy Book of a Deity. You don't want them getting into the Holy Book and, like, arguing over lines of scripture. But that is an important detail. But it's not something that factions would really be fighting over, unless that's exactly what they're fighting over, in which case... The game kind of revolves around that, but you don't want them getting bogged down in like these really nitty gritty details of the setting. You want to focus on things that will have more or less immediate impact and can be explained rather simply.
1: Well, those nitty gritty details also put you more into the realm of the, uh, the overly detailed personal knowledge for established settings. So trying, trying to keep away from something where Uh, an obscure fact that you weren't aware of can can throw the game one direction or another uh, is helpful to you and your cause as the gm
2: good rule of thumb the thing you're intriguing about and the thing you're trying to change you should be able to fit into a tweet if you can't summarize what they're trying to change or what the game is about in less than 140 characters you're probably going too nitty-gritty well at least i thought that was pithy no
0: that was that was brilliant
1: (laughs) Well, a tweet might be too small, but you know, a reasonably sized game ad should be able to summarize the purpose of the game in a way that not only catches the attention of your prospective players, but so that they know the scope of the intrigue before they go in. Because if they go in blind, that just gets back into the uh, people not enjoying the game and dropping out early because they thought it was A and it ended up being B.
2: Basically, if you can't summarize what the game is about in one or two breaths, it's too crunchy and too minute. Bring it back a level and get kind of broader.
1: One of the critical aspects of an intrigue game is that you've got a lot of moving pieces that are going on. And it can be somewhat akin to a cold war, if you will, of backstabbing and cloak and dagger things that, that don't really happen out in the open. And it can be occasionally useful for the uh, the GM to break up the game with a little hot action here or there. I'm thinking Romeo and Juliet, where there's a lot of maneuvering going on, but then you had the boys who would go out and have a sword fight in the street because, you know, tempers would flare.
2: Well, and you could even work this back into the intrigue, where you have to change the pace up fairly often, but that change of pace should still feed back into your original, like, intrigue. It's just, oh, we need to discover what Baron Von Evilface is doing. Well, I've heard that he's got a great duelist, and if we invest the duelist in a drinking contest and a sword contest, maybe he'll let slip what Baron Von McBadface is doing.
1: Man, I'm totally using Baron Von McBadface in my next game.
2: That's my (laughs) PG version. Baron Baron McBadface has a great rating and everything, and he's read the Evil Overlord list.
0: So you can also... To kind of help break that up, you have to give your players a little a level of free agency. Um, you don't want to just say these are what these are the actions you can take you want to let them kind of come up with their own actions and those actions they decide on can give your players the chance to break up the uh, i guess monotony of just backstabbing and talking in circles and uh, subterfuge and those things. So if they come up with their own ideas on how to deal with these issues, then the players can act on those in their own ways.
2: Even more than that, one of the point of running an entry game is letting your players disrupt the normal function of the world setting. And if you have one player who's playing the Paladin who's like, I'm going to lawful good my way through this, and I'm just going to go up and accuse him of being bad, maybe let that work. The whole point of intrigue is letting the players change the rules and change the status quo, and you have to roll with what your players want and what your players are interested in, and if they change the rules, a lot of times the other factions might not actually respond to that very well.
1: That That is a critical point, the part about responding to it. The factions have to be independently motivated and moving on their own. So that when you disrupt their plans, it's not like they're just reacting to the thing that you did that was disruptive, but it really sets them back and causes them to do things that are mistake prone. I mean, it's easy to plan up until you have contact with the enemy. At that point, their metal is really going to be tested. You know, setting setting your players up with some successes in those regards, or if they make their own successes, they have to have opportunities to capitalize on them, to, to really drive home how well they did.
2: That's so key. Every other faction in an Intrigue is not static. They have their own plans. They have their own methods. And they're going to keep working no matter what the other players do. And if the players kind of choose to focus on somebody else, if they focus on faction A, maybe faction B gets their plan done unopposed because they weren't opposed. It's Other factions are just always, always doing their own thing and they're always progressing forward. And so even if you block one faction, the other might actually get what they want unobserved. So now the players have to reevaluate, oh, hey, we forgot to deal with faction B, but we dealt a blow to faction A. Maybe we should focus on faction B next. But if they do that, maybe faction A now gets another leap ahead.
1: Yeah, that's a that's really good point there, Ruben. My general rule of thumb when I'm building an intrigue is if the players have N resources to put into play against their opposing factions, there should be at least N plus one things that they have to go deal with. There should always be a resource shortage and always a need for them to carefully choose. I'm going to work on this problem and I'm making the risk-based judgment to ignore this other problem and hope it doesn't bite me in the ass.
2: And sometimes it might not. not. Like sometimes the other faction is going to fail, just like the players might fail. In a good way to kind of really outsource, because running multiple factions is really, really hard on a single person. So outsource it, To your other friends. We all have other friends who are other GMs who probably have a little bit of extra time. Why not get other GM friends or other player friends to run the other factions for you? Just kind of say them, okay, you're playing the faction of Baron Vaughn McBoneface and he is a necromancer and he wants to cover the world in bones. Here are your resources. Here's what you want to do. What do you do? So kind of crowdsource a lot of the other factions out to your friends, so you're not just stuck in your own way of thinking, and you get another way of thinking from everybody else.
0: And another thing you can do is you are careful about it and you kind of keep an eye on every you can also have multiple players be in multiple faction. So they're not always all working together. They're all they sometimes they're working against one. And that's can also be a consideration that each faction needs to take into account, is, okay, how are other players going to respond to what I'm doing, or what are they going to do if I don't respond to them?
2: So when you do this, you have to keep in mind the diplomacy rule. There's a uh, board game called Diplomacy where everybody works against each other. I call it the friendship killer. If you do this and you have players working against each other, you have to make sure this is really known ahead of time and people are okay with this. Because when players lie to other players, sometimes that can lead to bad feelings.
1: Yeah, it's one thing to have a GM's NPC tell you something that's blatantly not true and you fall for it. Oh man, you got me there. But when it's your buddy that you thought you were relying on, uh, who you play Call of Duty with and he's got your back every time, and then you come into an intrigue game and he just uh kidney punches you, mm, that's hard.
2: It just goes back to knowing your players and that when you're running intrigue, you really have to know your player base really well.
1: So what do we do if uh I mean this is play by post. Players drop in other games where uh you know they're in the middle of fighting some gigantic demon and oh uh, real life came up and I can't continue on. When you've got an intrigue running that may revolve around one of the or more of those players, if they drop out, what are you gonna do?
2: I think you have to err on the side of not screwing the other active players. If the player who dropped had a critical role in other players' schemes, maybe NPC them a bit and let it at least not screw the other people. The last thing you want is for a scheme of yours to die because somebody else couldn't play. You have to kind of, you know, fudge a little bit on the side of the players just because having somebody drop out is already punishment enough. Don't screw them further.
0: And with an intrigue game, you can always, like, obviously you don't want to make it too hard on the players, the remaining players, but in intrigue games, it's probably one of the easiest ones to phase players in and out. So if a player drops out, maybe that character just got assassinated. And then obviously in a true faction type setting, they'd have to bring in someone to replace that person. So another player can step in. And that's the new person that fills that role now. I think that, I think intrigue, it's probably the easiest one to do that sort of thing.
2: Oh yeah, the faction leader's assassinated and now his second to command steps up. Uh, I think intrigue games, more than any other game, are really vulnerable to players dropping, are players going dormant. And I think you really need an active, well, an active bench, for lack of a better word, to bring new players in in case somebody else drops. Intrigue is not a game where you can let somebody go inactive for a couple of weeks. You know, it really relies on everybody working together and like passing information back and forth. If you have somebody that drops, or as Tiffany Corda kind of points out, somebody hoards information and is not a good team player, you have to have a way to correct for that. And you have to have a way to correct for that quickly. So I think with intrigue games, I always want to recruit at least three or four extra players that aren't in the game now, but I want them to be readers, and I want them to be able to jump in quickly in case I need a replacement.
1: Right. Now, mechanically, we have to be careful with Intrigue Games uh, with the reader status, because reader conveys the ability to see all of the private things that are going on, which brings up a separate point entirely about the use of private tags and private threads uh, in Intrigue Games, and I'm all for it. I use it all the time. Communicate things that are going on that aren't general knowledge. It makes the players uh, feel more invested when they get that info dump. Uh, it helps them to uh, build a deeper understanding of what's going on when they're not just having to use their own eyes, but they, they can pull in resources, informants or, or what have you that are part of their faction, uh, to give them, uh, for your eyes only type info.
2: Well, and I think we should kind of circle back to How are you going to start your injury game? Are you going to start all the players as the underdogs and that they don't have very much political power and now they kind of have to make their way in a world where everybody else is dominant? Or are you going to start it where they're dominant and maybe they have to defend from a disrupting influence? How you start the game really kind of sets the tone for what's going to happen.
0: I think in the case if they're the underdog, then perhaps the players joining a faction that is not as powerful as another is kind of that tipping balance that kind of evens the scales, whereas if they join the dominant power, that something has to happen that balances the scales so that the players actually have a challenge in taking on opposing factions rather than just saying, oh, we're the most powerful, we don't have to do anything.
1: Right. That It's critical that there has to be tension in an intrigue game, and that level of power balance has to be brought about in a way that the players can make a meaningful contribution to change it. think Star Wars, or... Uh, know, I'll just run with Star Wars for a second. The uh, First Order, okay, yeah, they're threatening, but... They really level the playing field when they go in and they destroy the Republic's, uh, you know, core power base there at the end of uh, episode seven. Now it's going to be more of an even fight and more of a chance for, uh, players on an individual scale to have an ability to tip the, tip the balance.
2: I think bottom line, once you introduce the players is the point at which the scales tip in either direction, but the players are the catalyst. For change, that's the whole point of an introduction. Is once you introduce the players, things are going to change, and they're probably not going to change for the better. It's up to the players to make the change good.
0: And to that end, once you've introduced the players and the scales do tip, you don't necessarily want to force the players in any one direction. Um, so obviously, you can have like events kind of planned out in advance, but. You don't want to tell the players, this is where you need to go, this is who you need to talk to. You kind of want to let them figure that out on their own and get them to arrive at their own conclusions and their own solutions for problems. Yeah, you can't
2: railroad in a intrigue game. It's Intrigue games are weirdly proactive and reactive at the same time, where everybody is doing something at the same time, and then you all see what the fallout of what everybody's done is, and then you react to the fallout. And the cycle begins again,
1: I think even more than many other kinds of games, over communicating on the g m s part is critical for intrigue because that flow of information is what drives the cycle that Ruben just mentioned.
2: No game died because the g m gave too much information
1: now you know we've talked about uh cloak and dagger and you know subterfuge and the like. What sort of opportunities are good to give to players? to help get them invested in the intrigue and, and actually making that type of change. You know, things I can think of, uh, you know, if there's a party going on, maybe they have a chance to uh, go in and uh, pull someone aside and have a private conversation to try and sway them one way or another. Uh, or if they're trying to take them out of the picture, maybe they slip a little poison into their drink or their meal or something. Lots of opportunities. Um, so what do you guys use?
2: I kind of let my players dictate that. If I've got a player who's really good at some skill and he wants to bring it into an intrigue, chances are being really good at that skill should change the status quo. If I have Barty McBardface who's good at juggling and he thinks he can juggle to make the king like him, well, maybe that works and maybe that changes the status quo. I mean, it's kind of a bad example, but point being, let the players dictate what changes the status quo by what they're good at because chances are they're good at something, that's what they're interested in exploring anyway. So go with the players.
1: Which means you really need to know what they're good at so that you can make sure that there are opportunities for them to exploit those uh, pro-elections.
2: Intrigue is not a low-capacity GM sort of game. Intrigue is a very high-demand GM sort of game.
0: Um, I think I, I kind of go with Ruben on this one. It would be up to the players mainly to figure out how they want to interact with other people. Uh, but i definitely don't want to say that they can't do basically anything mainly because players are going to be way more creative than i am when they come up with a solution to a problem so giving them the option to express that creativity and give them the chance to at least try it is worth is worth letting them
1: well See, weaving myths does tabletop episode 1 where ruben went to uh Baldface lie his way out of a potential shootout at the Italian restaurant.
2: It was a good idea at the time.
1: <laughs> it was a drunk idea at the time.
2: <laughs> like I said, it was a good idea at the time.
0: But I mean, I guess at some point you probably want to say to your player, players, do you want to reconsider that perhaps? Like a very nicely worded, are you sure you want to do that? Uh, just because some ideas probably won't go well, and the player probably knows it's not going to go well, but they want to do it just for the laugh. Well,
2: and a lot of times, the more outrageous the player action is, the bigger the chance that even their success is going to open up a new complication. Buy am Phytor, the Phytarian, and I want a Phytor, Baron, McBond Bad Pace. Yeah, I might succeed, but that's also going to bring up a bunch of political... uh
1: <laughs> yeah, se- several of the factions who might have been previously neutral are going to view you as the aggressor in Baron's doings and now might side with him in, uh, in some sort of future deal.
2: Basically, the more outlandish the action, the more potential complications it should cause, even on a success. Yes, you're going to achieve your goal, but you might open up whole new problems just because of how you approach the problem.
0: Alright, well, I think we have pretty well covered intrigue. I'm sure we could keep coming up with things to talk about, but, uh, do you guys have anything you want to add before we move on? Do not attempt this.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's the, we can end it with everything in intrigue is yes, but because once you finally solve a situation, well, that would be the end of the game. So if the game is going to continue, there have to be complications arising from everything that happens.
0: All right, and with that, let's move on to Mystery, which is a very, I would say it's related, but completely different at the same time to Intrigue. So Mystery, you kind of have this setting where the players are setting out to solve one specific problem, or maybe a series of problems, uh, most commonly framed as, like... I'm going to go there, Sherlock Holmes, where it's you've got Sherlock and he's got to solve the murder of whoever it was, and the players are filling the role of Sherlock.
2: Well, and to bring another example. Scooby-Doo, who exactly is haunting the old diamond mind? Is it Old Man Smithers? It might be, but it could also be the 100,000-volt ghost.
1: Yeah, you have to be able to suspect more than one person for a mystery game to be effective. If there's only one plausible suspect from the front, then pretty much all you're trying to do is gather enough evidence to pin him down. And that's no fun. Uh, That's a different kind of game.
2: Which is basically saying, start with the mystery. If it's a whodunit of who killed this, start with the real the bad guy. I mean, it can't be just one bad guy, but somebody has been murdered. Who murdered them? Oh no, the Duke's jewels have been stolen. Who stole the Duke's jewels? Basically, start with the problem. Which is a good way to build your adventure. Start with the problem and work backwards.
1: Yeah, if you if you know who did it, then you need to know who he's related to, who would potentially have known where he was and what he was interested in or up to, and you just build back from there. You kind of make a tree of clues that the players have to uh, find in whatever various ways suit them, so that they keep finding that next point along the tree that narrows it down and gets them to the ultimately correct conclusion.
0: So one way you can structure this is with the rule of three clues. And basically the way that works is to progress from one scene to the next, there are three ways to get to that next scene. And they're not all necessarily related. So, for example, if the wizard can detect magic and find a magic item. Perhaps also the fighter can be sitting at a bar talking to the bar, uh, barkeep and the barkeep drops a hint that leads them both to the same place. So it, you don't want to set it up so that only one person can discover all the clues, but you do want to make sure that there are multiple paths to progress in the story to keep it moving forward.
1: Yeah. And, and for the most part, they need to be legitimate clues. People get frustrated if you throw out a bajillion red herrings. Occasionally a red herring is good just to make sure that the players are considering all their options before they jump from point A to point B. But, uh, you know, if you throw out red herrings all over the place, they're going to stumble across them. They'll try and run down a lead. They'll find dead end after dead end. You're going to get really frustrated and that's not going to be good for your game's longevity.
2: Yeah. When you're running a mystery game, it's far better to front-load successes. You want players to get ahead of steam. You kind of start earning early victories. So when they start kind of encountering roadblocks later, they've got enough momentum going forward that they're not going to give up. If you start with a bunch of red herrings and it's just really hard to even find out like who the first suspect is, people are going to get frustrated and they're going to give up. Which just goes back to the rule of three: make the clues easy to find. In fact, if you're running a mystery, the role really shouldn't even be, do I find the clue? The role should be, how fast do I find the clue? Or how easily do I find the clue? You have to assume players are going to succeed. It's just, what is the cost of success?
1: Right. It can be more people end up dying. It can be other people find out what you know, and so it gives them an opportunity to cover their tracks. There, there's always, again, just like the intrigue game, there's going to be complications that arise from the quality of your
2: success. So Tiffany Corda brings up, players will almost always pick up on the wrong things, which plays into, remember, you're the one designing the adventure. You know the solution to the mystery. The solutions are going to seem incredibly obvious to you. To an outside observer who doesn't know how you think and doesn't know all the other facts... They are not going to be noticeable. They're not going to be as obvious. So, kind of remember that and maybe make the clues easier than they should be.
0: And if your players do get stuck, you can always nudge them in the right direction. There's nothing wrong with Um, the, the thing is you don't want to just outright say, are you guys stumped and have everybody come back and say yes. And then you say, okay, here's the answer. You don't want to do that. You kind of want to lead them to the answer. You want to say, well, maybe you should revisit this character and see if he knows anything else. Or, um, maybe you didn't search a room thoroughly. Um,
1: bring up a good point, Nathan, and and one that I've run into with a number of intrigue games, particularly in the play-by-post format, uh, and Mystery is pretty much the same. The games run long. Things take a while to develop in play-by-post, and so it could be months. It could be a year between the clue that they're pursuing now and the one that they found previously that should tie in and allow them to make a conclusion. So... I find it imperative that the players keep a log of what they know so that they can refer back to it and remember that thing that they did months ago and put two and two together and get four.
2: And if a player asks, hey, I remember, you know, Bob McSuspect said something kind of shady four months ago. Where was that? Maybe point them to the post where that was actually said rather than being too kind of... You know, wishy-washy. If somebody kind of tries to remember something, point them in the direction of the source and let them figure it out.
1: Yeah. Again, player enjoyment is is paramount. It's what we're trying to achieve here. So, just because you're the GM doesn't mean that uh, you should be, uh, how do we say, antagonistic and trying to defeat their efforts to actually solve the mystery. You need to enable them to the extent that they would be real people in a real setting um, that aren't mm-hmm. just going to randomly forget details from day to day
0: sure if it's months out of the game it could only be a day or two in the game and in the game there's no way someone would forget that detail but out of the game because it takes so long to move from one scene to the next It's super easy for players to forget, so don't want to purposefully hide things that they do already know. You don't want to have to force them to rediscover those things that they've forgotten.
2: But in the same vein, you don't want things to be too obvious, so sometimes you have to kind of obfuscate who the bad guy is. I mean, mysteries are pretty boring if there's just one really obvious suspect. Maybe give them two or three suspects who might be kind of obvious. Give them multiple motives. Give them kind of options to track down.
0: Sure. So sure. when so when you're designing a mystery, you want to give multiple people motive to commit the crime, even though not everyone actually acted on that motive. And means is another way to point suspicion at someone who isn't actually the bad guy. Be like, okay, well, you don't have an alibi for this time frame, but, or so that means Potentially could have committed the crime because we, we know you don't have an alibi.
1: Yeah, the motive thing is a, a really important aspect of this, I feel, because you can start off with the Duchess who has long harbored a grudge against, uh, Baron McDoomface for something that he did, uh, years and years ago. And she's, she's declared publicly that, you know, she'd like to run him through with her own sword, if he suddenly turns up dead, run through with the sword, now she's a suspect. Even if she's never actually dueled anyone anywhere, she's at least, you know, confessed of her intent.
2: When you are laying out suspects, I think it's better to start with easy solutions rather than hard solutions. You want the players to build a little bit of a head of steam before you start making things more difficult. It's a lot easier to make things more difficult mid-mystery than it is to make them more easy. It's If the first couple of clues are really easy, well, maybe make the next couple of clues a bit more obfuscated. But if you start really hard and people just can't figure out where to go next, they're going to lose interest and kind of just drop from the game. So start easy, then make it harder.
0: Sure. So as an example of that, like the first set of clues... Like, if it's a murder, for example, they're going to inspect the body. And the the clues related to the body and how the actual murder took place is going to be really obvious and really eager out. But the next set of clues may be narrowing down alibis. And those can be harder to get out of people, especially if there's a reason they would want to hide what they were doing. So, and not just because of they committed the murder. So, like, say, person C is having an affair with person D, but she doesn't want people to know that she's having that a- affair. So it's a more difficult clue to try and get out of that person, uh, rather than just looking at a body and saying, okay, there's a sword in his chest. Okay. There's his hands are cut up or whatever, whatever the clues may be. Yeah. In the
1: case of our Duchess, uh, maybe she, um, was actually sleeping with Baron McDoomface and, uh, is trying to avoid the public disgrace that would come along with having that found out. So all of the bluster about wanting to have him killed was simply a cover to try and uh, you know, make it so that people wouldn't think that she had the hots for him.
2: Which can lead right into a false confession. Maybe Baron Doomface wants to spare the Duchess, you know, some hardship, and so he confesses. Um, so he confesses to cover her... But he's not actually really the killer, and you have to kind of get past that false confession. So sometimes the easy solution isn't actually the solution because somebody else is trying to cover for the real killer.
1: Right. In fact, the two of them were in bed at the time of the murder, and so their covering alibi is each other. Um, and, but you have to go find the maid who knew that uh, she had seen Baron face crawling up a silk sheet into the Duchess's bedroom window. That night at 9 o'clock when the murder happened.
2: But the butler for Baron Doomface might also know that he didn't come home, too. So that's another lead. Just goes back. Three leads, every clue.
0: Sure. And for every person who has the potential to tell a lie or wants to mislead the players, you need someone that they can trust. So, like, maybe the local sheriff needs help solving the murder, so he calls in the players and they know they can trust the sheriff and he's always going to tell them the truth. You really don't want everybody lying to the players because then there's no way for them to find out what actually happened. They need people that they can talk to and be like, okay, I know for sure that this guy is going to tell me the truth when I ask him a question.
2: And you need to single that early too. And once somebody is noted as trustworthy... Do not double cross that. If somebody is a, like, trustworthy source, don't have them lie later. They should always be trustworthy. You need a couple of trustful touchstones so players aren't suspecting everybody. Because when you suspect, uh, suspect everybody, it's hard to make headway in it a mystery. You have to have a couple of people that you can really kind of rule out early as being innocent. Because if your suspect pool is too broad, it gets almost impossible to track down all the leads.
1: Now naturally those people who are there can fully trust can't possibly have all of the stories or all of the critical evidence or all of the unique clues that will drive the players to the right solution or else your game will die very quickly. They need to be help of a limited sort where they can steer the players in the right direction, vaguely, you know, point them toward a clue where they need to go, but, uh, can't just outright tell them. Yeah, the Duchess didn't do it.
0: Sure, like oh, yeah. so the so the sheriff example, he is calling in the players to help him. You don't expect him to have already solved the murder, so he's there as kind of like a guide rather than oh, I already know who did it. Now you guys have to figure it out.
2: But it can't tell you that uh, Duchess Snootyface was with him during the time of the murder, and so she is not possibly a suspect. Uh, the role of truthful people is to narrow down your suspects, not solve the murder.
0: Now, on the flip side of that, it's just as important that your players trust one another. Um, So you don't want players saying, oh, well, the fighter did it. That just kind of ruins the whole point of the mystery, where they're supposed to be working together to solve the murder. You don't want them pointing fingers at one another. Now, obviously, you can twist that and have one of the players be the murderer but there has to be kind of the initial knowledge of okay yes one of the players is the bad guy but we have to figure out who and like that then becomes two different games in one where on one side it's how long can the bad guy draw it out versus how long does it take for the players to figure out that he's the bad guy
2: and if you're running this type of game you have to be incredibly upfront about it Everybody has to know going in, this is the kind of game you're in. Otherwise, you're going to crash and burn.
1: And that player who is your actual villain needs to be in on the take as far as the having the GM perspective of the ultimate purpose is for the players to find him, other players to find him out. You don't win by preventing that. You win by making it entertaining along the way until that reveal finally happens.
2: And just like in that situation where players will lie to one another, In the situation where it's all the players against the NPCs, no murderer is going to be truthful. They're going to lie. They're going to misdirect. And so the actual killer was a normal human. He might have used clawed gauntlets to make people think it was done by a werewolf. And then he points out, Baron Bavon disappears during the moon, disappears during the moon oh, maybe he's the killer because he's a werewolf because he's never here during the full moon when really he's just got some weird religious sect thing that says he has to worship during the full moon. Bottom line, killers lie, and they should lie. They shouldn't tell the truth. It's not like Law and Order, where once you get them in the box, they're going to confess everything. No, they're going to lie until you find out facts that disprove them.
0: And as always, you can look to basically any of the classics for inspiration if you're if you're wanting to run a mystery game and you're struggling to come up with ideas there's more detective and like mystery books than i can count but the classics are always a good place to start like obviously sherlock holmes murder on the orient express which actually i saw an ad for on tv and that looks pretty darn good i'm gonna have to go see that uh but like csi ncis kind of these murder mystery shows where it's a group of people working together to solve a crime
2: and there's so many on tv now it totally crib one and your players probably won't notice
1: yeah you have to be a little careful sometimes because you know going back to the player player trust thing one of my favorite agatha christie murder mysteries is 10 little indians but if the players all suspect each other they're going to end up clamming up, not sharing information, and it's just going to cause the game to grind to a halt as they all stare at one another with fingers pointed and not enough information to actually uh, remove any of them from consideration.
2: Just goes back to mystery should be players versus GM, unless expressly stated otherwise, but the players should always trust each other. Yeah, Timalians is great doesn't usually work with tabletop because it relies on all the other PCs mistrusting each
1: other. Yeah, and the novel author can force the players of the story to play just nice enough with each other to make it work. With real people, with independent agency, not so much.
2: Now, when I'm cribbing, I try to crib off genre. I've actually gotten a lot of really good mysteries from westerns. Tell me more. Oh, uh my grandfather loved Louis L'Amour. In a lot of Louis L'Amour novels, there's always a, who killed the landholder, or who killed the farmer, and I've cribbed a lot of stuff from those old novels, and none of my other friends read them, so they always come off fairly well. I'll go for sci-fi. Star Trek had some great mysteries, too. Just go off genre, because people won't kind of think of it in those terms.
0: You know, I I didn't really think about Star Trek, but now that I am thinking about it, there is that one episode where, correct me if I'm wrong, but... They were on the Hollow deck, and Data was Sherlock Holmes. Is that right? Yes. Ele- yes.
2: Elementary, my dear Data, is the first one. Moriarty becomes self-aware. Data was Sherlock Holmes in several Star Trek episodes.
0: Yeah, so... <laughs> I, I honestly didn't even think about that until you mentioned it.
2: Oh, Elementary, my dear Data was one of the best Star Trek episodes that had Dr. Pulaski only lasted for season two.
1: Mr. Andrew J. points out for uh, those of you who are interested in reading Agatha Christie Murder Mysteries and uh, looking for the book that I cited, it was previously titled Ten Little Indians back when I read it back in the Dark Ages, uh, probably for reasons of political correctness. It's now been retitled to And Then There Were None, um, but in either case refers back to an old nursery rhyme.
0: All right. Do we have anything else we want to add before we move on?
2: I think we're good.
0: Alright, this week's Game of the Week is Restwell Keep, being run by Geekahedron. Restwell Keep is a D&D 4th edition game designed to take the players from level 1 to level 10. The players will start as fledgling adventurers who find themselves in, in Restwell Keep, whether they're a child of a soldier there or an adventuring mage who has come to the area looking for a rare specimen for study. Restwell Keep is settled near the Chaos Scar, an area marred by a meteor that crashed to the ground, and this area is ripe for adventure. The players will be put into a quasi-sandbox based in this area and follows in the footsteps of a choose-your-own-adventure type story. The game will be focused on uncovering the secrets of the Chaos Scar and the stronghold that overlooks it. Geekahedron is looking for a few players to join him in this story, and applications are due very soon, so be sure to get those applications in. Based on what I've heard, Geekahedron is a solid GM and proved to be a deft hand at guiding this sort of game.
2: And the Chaos Car is super fun. Probably the best thing they put out for 4E, so good call. Is it a pre-written adventure? Uh, yeah, but it's really super sandboxy. They put out just a bunch of different encounters and adventures in the Chaos Car. Like, Dragon Magazine did a whole year of it. So, it's really fun. It's really modular.
0: Gotcha. And of course, as always, I'm going to put the link to that game in the Discord chat. And for those of you listening to the recording, that will be available in the forum post when the episode goes live on SoundCloud. And with that... It is time for everybody's favorite segment of the evening, the question and answer segment. Uh, so people can ask us anything they want to know, be it about Mythweavers gaming, uh, previous topics, topics we'll, we might talk about in the future, uh, anything they want to know. But first, as always, we have our mandatory question of what's making us happy this week. And we will start with Mordai.
1: I am super psyched for our next episode of Weaving Myths does Tabletop, which is coming up on the 2nd of December. I don't get a chance to be a player very often. I'm almost always the GM, so that's one of the, the aspects that has me going. This is also going to be my first time getting into Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition, uh, so I'm really looking forward to, to see how that plays out, uh, since I've played every other edition chronologically from the Red Box basic all the way up. Uh, and then, uh, the third thing is, uh, there's gonna be a special guest star, and I haven't had a chance to play in a game with her for a while, so I'm looking forward to that immensely.
2: It's your wife, right?
1: Okay, yeah, just spoil it.
2: Dude, <laughs> you weren't subtle.
1: I had to be very careful about how I phrased that so that someone wouldn't say, uh, untoward things about, uh, the last time my wife and I have, uh, been together.
0: <laughs> okay. All right, Ruben, what's making you happy this week? Well, you know, the same thing. Mithwears does tabletop.
2: I get to run, like, one of my very favorite 5e modules. And, like, I'm not usually even a module guy, but I love Lost Minds of Pandelver to death. And getting to run a bunch of new people through this is going to be super fun. Like, oh, man, I'm so psyched for that. It's going to be great. Also, Zenithar's Guide to Everything is dropping this month. I'm super excited about that. Uh, it's the new 5e player, well, player and GM option book. But a lot of stuff that showed up on all the Unarth uh, articles has made it into official form. And I think they're also reprinting some of the good spells. So everybody who does Adventurers you're now going to have one book to get most of the stuff you need. Uh, it's going to be great. And so, uh, I'm doing stuff for Movember. I have a bunch of donations. I'm raising over 200 bucks for men's health. And my Movember beard is coming in fairly well, considering my genetics. So, yeah, I'm happy about that.
0: All right. And what's making me happy this week? So, in the last two weeks, I saw something that I have never seen before on Mythweed in my history on the site. Um, So, I'm sure other people have. But for the very first time, I saw one post written collaboratively by two people i've never seen that before on myth and it is one of the coolest things i've ever seen
2: explain
0: okay so basically what they did is that through discord they got in touch with one another and then in a google doc i assume they wrote collaboratively one post
2: that's super cool
0: Apparently they did it over PM, but still, regardless of how they did it, it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen on MythWeavers and I, it kind of blew me away when I saw it because I've never seen anything like that before on the site.
2: Should be mentioned, one half of that was user Avarius.
0: Yep, that was in my, uh, Starfinder game. Faith and Avarius worked together and put that post out. And it was fantastic. It was a really good post. Anything else? Um, yeah, so you reminded me that, uh, actually, Avarius asks, should I post the link to that? And yes, you totally should, because it's really cool, and people need to see this. Um, so Ruben reminded me that Xanathar's Guide to Everything is coming out, and I am so hype for that, I can't even describe it. This is the one book I have been waiting for the most out of all the fifth edition. It's gonna be so good! Right? And then, last but not least, I am running a Dungeon World game. So, this is my first exploration with Dungeon World, and I've never seen it before... Well, I've heard of it, but I've never actually, like, looked at the rules for it before. So, once I started reading the rules, I was like, I need to get in on this. So, instead of running another Starfinder game like I was originally planning on, I'm running this Dungeon World game instead. It looks awesome... Are your apps still open for that, by the way? Yes, so they close this coming Friday.
2: Alright, Chini, we're gonna resubmit, uh, Artan and Mask, right? Yeah, I'm totally gonna, you know, I'm gonna bomb your Dungeon World game because it's super awesome.
0: Alright, bring it on. Alright, and with that, we can move on to the actual questions and answers. So, uh, bring on the questions. Bring it on! Oh, uh, Avarius has just posted link to that dual post or collaborative post, whatever you want to call it. And I'll throw the link to that in the forum post when the recording goes live as well, so people who are listening to the recording can check it out.
2: All right, there's a lull. What are you guys going to play for my game?
0: Um, I'm still kind of undecided. I'm not 100% sure yet. Well,
1: Marlana and I are planning on, right now, a brother-sister pair of half-elves, a uh, bard on my part and a sorcerer on her part.
2: Nice. Actually, Mar, do you and your wife often play, like, paired characters?
1: Well, it frequently ends up with some sort of interpersonal relationship, and we decided that, uh, romance wasn't something that we needed to inflict on you, so we picked the, uh, the sibling thing, which tends to end up more in a, uh, playful rivalry. It would be fun for a, uh, Weaving Missed uh tabletop episode.
2: For the record, I love romance, so also totally appropriate.
0: I might just stick with my usual 5th edition character. Just generic fighter McFighterson.
1: One of the things that, uh, Milana actually suggested was that we're a uh, traveling troupe of, uh, performers. So, uh, maybe if you're the fighter, you can be the, uh, the big burly guy who bends bars with his teeth and uh, smashes boards with his forehead or something.
0: Oh man, yeah. do I get uh, to have waxed mustachios?
1: Yes! And a big barrel, bare chest.
0: Yes!
2: Alright, I'm sold. Nate, I'm actually going to recommend maybe you go Paladin. I can, see that. I can
1: see that. That would be awesome. So that leaves Colin as our uh, Barker face rogue type person then?
2: Or whatever he wants. I don't go with genders or roles. Genders, really. <laughs> oh, and so, oh god, I'm going to destroy this. Chibi Amy, I guess how it is, is asking favorite genre
0: so for me, my favorite book genre is fantasy, followed very closely by sci-fi. Uh for movies, I like thrillers, um and for RPGs, I like I just like RPGs in general. So I don't really have a favorite genre for those. Mhm.
1: Book definitely going to be fantasy. Movie, sci-fi because you can do so many cool things now with today's special effects. RPG, gotta be swashbuckling adventures. Uh, if I can't be uh, swinging from a rope off the deck of a ship to go harry the other ship's captain on his quarter deck, I'm not having fun.
2: Let's see, for me, book, sci-fi. I grew up on Asimov and Niven and all the classic sci-fi offers, so I'm definitely a sci-fi boy. Movie, western. My grandfather introduced me to westerns, and I've loved and watched them ever since. And for RPG, a tie between Western and fantasy. But I actually think D&D should be run like a Western anyway. So it's kind of a mostly Western. And D&D is actually a Western, dressed up, and medieval fantasy drag.
1: Tiffany <laughs> posts the good, the bad, and the half work, totally. Oh, that would be a great game. Gonna have to think about that one for a while.
2: So Avarius is asking... Favorite game you were ever in or ran, and gave us the awesome highlights. Oh, man, that's a tough one. All right, I'll give you guys time to think. I was running this. I was running Deadlands. I'm still actually running this game. Uh, I've got a great, great tabletop group, and I'm running the game. I'm running, if any of you actually know, uh, I'm running Coffin Rock, which was this weird introductory Deadlands reloaded thing they did. And I ran it way off the rails. And I'm going on some big sidetrack. And the party, are tracking down all these racist bad guys. And eventually, they run up against what's called a hanging judge. A hanging judge is an undead kind of evildoer who was hanged. But they also hanged a lot of people for wrong racial reasons. So I've got this hanging judge and all these um grave hounds, which are basically undead wolves. And I've got the party dead to rights. This guy pops up this... Hanging Judge is like, ah, I'm going to kill you all because you're all not white. And I play in Savage Worlds with the adventure cards. And one of the adventure cards is called Villainous Monologue, which says the villain takes a turn to monologue about their plan. I had drawn a Joker for my Hanging Judge. And my hangin Judge gets 12 attacks at plus two with this Joker. One of the players plays that on him. He doesn't get to attack 12 times at plus two. He gets to talk about the superiority of the white race, which I just monologue because I don't know how to do, Um and, well, the party killed him and all of his hounds because he spent his one and only turn being a really bad, mustache-twirling bad guy, because the rest of my party are super awesome. So yeah, it was kind of awesome that they got me to spend my one turn I had to actually hurt everybody monologuing like a really bad, bad guy.
1: That. Sounds pretty fun, Ruben. would have been uh, glad to have been in that kind of game. But the story that I'm thinking of actually comes from Gen Con in a game that I played in in one of the Iron GM competitions. So uh, D&D oh, 3.5 edition. And I was playing at Dwarven Cleric, and we had descended through the dungeon after following various leads that related to the theme for the, for the story. Um, but we had this battle with a Gorgon on a bridge that was collapsing over a pit of lava. And the paladin made this move to draw the Gorgon to charge him and uh, ended up hanging by his fingertips off the edge of the crumbling bridge. Um, and I didn't have a lot of spells left, but one of the ones that I had left was airwalk. And so uh, my dwarven cleric walked off the edge of the bridge, down to where this paladin was dangling and, uh, pulled him up. And it was super awesome because, uh, I don't think we could have uh, possibly defeated the Gorgon if the paladin hadn't made his gambit. And fortunately I just had a uh, trick in my bag that was good enough to, uh, save him so that we could carry on to the end of the adventure.
0: That's awesome. Man, I'm struggling over here. I, I have so many cool stories and so many games that I've thoroughly enjoyed.
2: I can give you another, uh, Right? if you it.
0: No, it's it's okay. I I think I'm going to have to go with Uh oh, it's been so long. I'm having trouble remembering some of the highlights, but basically, uh we were in a homebrew setting. Uh this was D&D 3.5, and I was part of a group that we found an airship and began going on quests together, and we named our group the Flying Bruschetties. And I have no idea where that name came from, and I honestly don't remember to this day, but um, we called ourselves the Flying Bruchettis, and gosh, there were so many things that happened in that game. That was one of, that was, so I know I've told this story before on the show, but that was the game where Bard killed the guy who was summoning an ancient evil god by casting the spell Grease, uh, so we were playing with the house rule that if you roll three natural ones in a row, you kill yourself. And so the bard cast grease on the ground, and the guy landed on the ground, slipped on the grease, three natural ones in a row, and killed himself. So this was like a level ten battle. Yeah, so it was it was pretty hilarious. Um, yeah, that was so long ago that I'm having trouble remembering any other highlights from it. But that was the one that stood out the most.
2: Uh, just reminds me of our space game. Uh, we had a friend who was running basically Traveller with a serial numbers like filed off. It's a space game. We're this motley crew of guys. We have, like, a jump one ship. I'm playing the psyker, but I'm also the ship's doctor. Like, I was the guy who actually put um chickens in cold sleep, so we'd actually have some fresh chicken for the uh, trip. But we get to this one, like, outpost, and, like, one of our guys get captured, and I eventually get him out of capture by claiming he had some rare space disease which causes a planet-wide quarantine for the space station, which shuts down this major trade hub for the rest of the game. But we get out. Eventually, we get this party, and my buddy, we found this weird precursor, like, amber disc. And one of my friends, who's also playing, like, the Space Marine or something, like, gets four copies made. I'm like, "Uh, okay, whatever. We end up selling four fake copies to the government, a mobster, another mobster, and a research company, and we progressively go to each meet, selling the fake disc, telling them we're going to meet them at the next location for the other group until eventually, on this neutral planet, there are four other factions shooting out, and we've already gotten the Jump 3 Drive installed, and all the money from other three discs, and we skip the company. I mean, literally, this was a game where there were, like, two places we could never go back to, because we just screwed over so many people. We were Space Masters, and it was awesome.
0: Alright, I think we have, we've spent quite a little bit more time than I thought on questions, but we have time for probably one more question.
2: Yeah, I went over there, I'm sorry.
0: No, that's okay. We've got time for probably one, maybe two if they're short questions. Uh, Chimmy asks, I like turtles. Okay, next turtles are awesome. Okay, next question. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's really more of a
0: statement. Uh. So,
1: I got a question. Since this is our season ender, do we need to have a cliffhanger? <laughs>
0: Um I'll think about it. I don't know how exactly to do a cliffhanger for a podcast.
1: Aside from
0: can. Aside from we'll see you guys next time and wait two months for the next time.
1: <laughs> Season two. New voices. New topics. New booze. <laughs>
0: Uh, so Dark Myth Battler asks, are we ever going to talk about rescuing games on We Myths? And I'm pretty sure we have talked about that, haven't we?
2: In passing, I actually think we should do an entire episode on that.
0: Uh, let me see, let me look at the episode archive real quick, cause I'm pretty sure- It was four or five?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that I covered this in extensive detail at one point because my name's attached to it.
2: I don't think we actually went that extensive. It was part of a three subject episode.
0: Yeah, we talked about it episode four.
2: It was like one of three, right?
0: Yeah, so in episode four, we talked about game abandonment, leaving and ending games, and then that's when we started our player archetype series.
2: You know, I think it's actually worth revisiting that.
0: All right, um, but yeah, we talked a little bit about it in episode four. We probably should go back to it at some point because it is a huge topic. I really think we could actually spit out an entire episode on that.
2: Like, taking over failing games, rescuing a failing game, what to do when your players drop. How
1: to rescue a player.
2: Ooh, that's a good one. One short question? Uh, sure. One short question. A question, Chimi. Uh,
0: Chimi wants to know, why are things the way they are? Because they are.
2: Also, your game got corrupted back in 1983. You really should reset.
0: Alright, I think it is about that time. So, before we wrap up for the evening, I would just like to take a moment to remind everyone that Weaving Myths officially has a Patreon. We have several tiers of rewards, ranging from us taking your topic suggestions more seriously than non-patrons, all the way up to receiving a free copy of my latest novel. Additionally, when we reach certain monthly goals, we'll be putting out extra content that is exclusive to patrons. Coming up, we're going to be uploading character creation and the first session of Weaving Myths Does Tabletop Episode 2, where Ruben will be running Lost Minds of Fandelver for myself, Mordi, and Colin. Be on the lookout for that in early December. Contributions start at as little as $1 per month, so it doesn't take much at all to show your support. The patrons over at Patreon help make this podcast possible, so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you all to check it out at patreon.com slash mythweavers one last thing i should note weaving myths is always has been and will always continue to be free full episodes are always uploaded to soundcloud within two days of the episode being recorded and all normal episodes will always be available for download or streaming free of charge so thank you everyone so much for joining us today on this last episode of season one of weaving myths it's been a blast And as always, we appreciate all the comments and questions from the text chat. I'm Nathan, and I've been joined by the magnificent Mordai.
1: So long, and thanks for all the games.
0: And Ruben. Later, you guys. Thanks for listening, and keep on weaving those myths.